0: My guest today, Dr. Raj Shah, served as the administrator of the United States Agency for International Development, USAID, from 2010 to 2015. He was just 36 years old when he was appointed to this cabinet-level position, and less than a week into his tenure, a massive earthquake struck Haiti. President Obama turned to Raj to coordinate the U.S. government's response. It
1: was my first call from the president I was in my office and, and my phone rang and it was the White House and they said, can you hold for a call with the president? I said, of course. <laughs> and, uh, and he and he immediately said, you know, I'm going to ask you to leave this lead the humanitarian effort in Haiti and work across the government and take responsibility for all of the engagements. and engagements. Uh, and, you know, we wish you well. And that was uh, a short engagement and interaction, but uh, the start of a great partnership and I was thrilled to have that opportunity and really overwhelmed by the responsibility that came with it.
0: And we do discuss how he came to terms with that responsibility. We also have a very interesting discussion about his childhood, growing up the son of immigrants from India, and how that compelled him to a career in global health and development. And that career really started with the Gates Foundation. He was one of the very early employees of the Gates Foundation, where he helped design a financing mechanism that to this day is helping to fund vaccines around the world. Raj is most recently the co-author with Michael Gerson of a chapter about USAID and foreign aid in the new book Moneyball for Government, which was published by Results for America. And we kick off discussing his contribution to that new chapter. Just a quick note before we begin: the audio quality of this interview is not of the caliber that you would typically get with this podcast, but it could have been much, much worse. In fact, it would have been totally lost if not for the efforts of a listener who moonlights as an audio engineer and rescued the contents of this interview. Now, I say this listener moonlights because his day job is as a distiller of handcrafted American whiskey out of Portland, Oregon. It's called Two Alton Valley Distillers. I've bought a bottle. And if you are 21 or older, and delicious handcrafted. American whiskey is your thing, go click on the link on globaldispatchespodcast.com because without the help of this talented distiller and audio engineer, this episode would have been totally lost. But thankfully, it was not. And now you get this great, fun, interesting conversation with Dr. Raj Shah. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
1: Well, I think at its most basic level, America spends well under 1% of our federal budget on global development and humanitarian affairs, and the return on that investment is really extraordinary. And that's true whether it's in Afghanistan, where for less than 2% of the total cost of a decade-long military campaign, we were able to get 8 million kids in school, including 3 million girls, uh, able to improve agriculture on hundreds of thousands of hectares of production, able to build out 2,700 kilometers of road and triple energy access, and improve the state of the Kabul-based governance. And while they had a tough road ahead in Afghanistan, if, if there weren't all those educated girls, And young women and young leaders, it would be much tougher still. And in Africa, over the last decade, we have been able to transform entire economies with a successful fight against HIV-AIDS and malaria. The number of children who die under the age of five from malaria has gone down from about a million to less than 500,000 continent-wide and is now on its way to near elimination in the next decade ahead. Uh, Around the world, when President Obama took office, we were facing a food, fuel, and financial crisis that your listeners are well aware of, uh, but we were able to, in addition to the other efforts to address the global economic situation, create a movement to reinvest in agriculture and food security and have helped nearly 100 million people move out of poverty and hunger uh, from high food prices and lack of available food in Africa, in parts of Latin America, and in South Asia. And, you know, in the Central American countries that had such a challenging situation with young children coming on their own, unaccompanied from the United States, we've done everything we can to support governance, rule of law, anti-crime engagements, and food and education programs for children, helping hundreds of thousands of families lead a better life. At home. So, in my view, uh, America doesn't spend enough uh, in terms of its uh, GDP and public budget on efforts to invest in smart, results oriented global development. But the investments we do make have pretty transformational impacts for less than 1% of our federal budget
0: you know you say that's just 1% of of the the federal budget if if that um i wonder though is the fact that like USAID funding is perhaps a little more politically vulnerable than other funding out there because there really isn't like a domestic constituency for USAID um that it's you know in in some lawmakers views it's sometimes Considered like a charity, so therefore it's more vulnerable to budgetary pressures perhaps than other funding streams? Well, it's
1: certainly vulnerable, but I would say that we definitely uh, are not at USAID a charity. You know, this investment is the forward defense of our national security, and it is a basic way to communicate the best of our values to the farthest corners of the globe. And so it is a critical investment in our own foreign policy and national security strategy. Uh, In terms of its domestic political vulnerability, yes, it is is tough to fight for the resources uh, to do more. But what I learned in my nearly six years as the administrator of USAID is when you reach across the aisle, work with Republicans and Democrats, demonstrate an unwavering commitment to deliver concrete, measurable results, and demonstrate a willingness to shut down programs. I I helped shut down more than 350 programs around the world that we deemed were not delivering concrete results uh, in order to shift resources to those that were doing better. You know, that sort of efficient management of public resources won the respect of both Republicans and Democrats and allowed us to significantly increase our budget each of the year I was administrator.
0: Um, So in the chapter, uh, you make an argument that that I find pretty intriguing that, um, you know, by and large, the international development community has figured out how to effectively deliver aid and interventions in, I I guess, typical situations. Uh, But you say that the next big challenge, the next puzzle to crack are how to do the same thing, but in conflict situations. I guess, why is that such an important um, issue to figure out? And and what do we know about what works in conflict zones, if anything?
1: Well, if you look at the last 15 years, there's been tremendous progress against the global fight against poverty and disease and a lack of human opportunity. But most of those gains have come in societies that are relatively well-governed and have uh, the basics of human security already in place. Yeah, Tanzania, Tanzania, Ghana, you know, countries that have cut hunger in half have eliminated uh, under five child deaths uh, to a very large extent and made significant progress in creating jobs and opportunities for their economies. And by the way, growing at 6 7 8% uh, annually for nearly a decade. And when you look at the next... 10 to 15 years. Today, there are more than a billion people that still live on a dollar a day of income. 860 million people will go to bed hungry tonight. The majority of those people in just a few years' time will be concentrated in countries where there is significant conflict, where governments are fragile at best and predatory at worst, and where the traditional knowledge of development experts of how to deliver success in relatively stable, improved governance environments uh, is simply less relevant. And so, yeah, we need new solutions for how do you create improved governance in rural Afghanistan or Libya? How do you help reach uh, women and families with basic healthcare interventions in Yemen and Somalia? These are places where governments and governments are very weak, very fragile. Uh, But they're also the places where, Extreme poverty, extreme climate, and extreme ideology will increasingly come together and create real moral and national security threats to our country and to others around the world. So it's a hugely important problem to solve, and we should all get about being much more intentional and results oriented in addressing it.
0: Um, so... You're someone who, who came on my radar screen in, in 2010 when you were appointed USAID uh, administrator, and I suspect uh, uh, on most people who are listening to this as well. Uh, I'd love to learn a little bit more uh, about your background. Now that you're not in government, I, I suppose you can speak more freely. Uh, um, so where, where, are you, where are you from? Where were you born?
1: I was born in Detroit, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, and I grew up around Detroit, Michigan uh, for most of my life. My dad worked at Ford Motor Company for more than 30 years, and I grew up uh, with a strong aspiration to be a designer of sports cars.
0: <laughs> now, your parents were, were immigrants from India?
1: They were. My father was an engineer who came to the United States to complete his master's education, and my mother was an early childhood educator who uh, owned and operated a Montessori school throughout my childhood.
0: Oh, did you go to that school?
1: Uh, I did, you know, when I was little, yeah.
0: Did you have to call your, your mother Mrs. Shaw or – well, I suppose it's Montessori, right? So you probably like called her by her first name. Yeah, I'm name.
1: not sure I remember. <laughs>
0: um, um, so so I, I guess how did, um, you know, having immigrant parents – I mean, my, my, my parents are, are immigrants as well, but, you know, from, from a little closer, from, from Canada, so it's not a huge cultural leap, but, but how did um, that experience shape your worldview from an early age?
1: Well, actually, when I was very young, maybe eight or nine years old, um, my parents took me to India to visit our relatives, and I just had this one image seared in my mind where my uncle in then Bombay, now Mumbai, said, you know, we need to show you what the real India is like, and this might have been late 1970s and uh, early 80s, and they drove me into a slum around Mumbai, and we got out of the car and walked. And I was just so overwhelmed by the poverty, the sight of open raw sewage, the picture of young kids in rags and families and families upon families upon families living in these dilapidated huts. And and frankly, as a kid who grew up in suburban Detroit, where the grass was green and everything seemed clean and uh, very nice at the time, it was just shocking to the senses. And it was also something that stayed in my mind uh, even today and, and really made me want to connect back to where they came from and hopefully have the chance to do something about the injustice that I felt. I mean, did, did your moment.
0: parents come from uh, any sort of deprivation? No.
1: Yeah, no, not particularly. My mother uh, came from a family that owned... Uh, cotton businesses in India. My father came from a middle-class family in a town called Ahmedabad in Gujarat. Uh, and when I saw his home and his community, it obviously didn't look like an American middle-class community. Uh, it looked to me like a poor community. But in that time and in that age, that was what the Indian middle-class lived, you know, how people lived. And my, my dad in particular, uh, when, when his father, who was an accountant, sent him to the United States to complete his studies, he emptied his entire retirement account for a one-way ticket to the United States of America for my dad. And they just had this abiding faith that there would be more justice and opportunity in America than he would ever experience in India.
0: And so, I mean, did you grow up kind of like the typical, like, you know, son of immigrant, like very driven uh, sort of thing? That, that, sort of, that sort of disposition, which is, I think, common among, among the, the children of immigrants to America?
1: Yeah, I'd say that's accurate. You know, I was supposed to be a cardiologist. Never quite got there. Uh, but, yeah. but, yes. <laughs>
0: well, how far? What, what, when did you go to, to – so what inspired you to go to medical school?
1: Well, actually, what, you know, after, after college, mm-hmm. I went to the University of Michigan and studied economics and science. And I was deciding whether to go into economics or medicine. And I had an experience working in rural South India on a tuberculosis project. And I was uh, motivated by that experience to want to have a career in global health. And I wrote, I think, in my own personal judgment, a rather eloquent essay to that effect, <laughs> applied to and went, went to medical school. Uh, but I always, in my heart of hearts, had a passion for sort of economics, policy, and politics. And after medical school, joined Al Gore's presidential campaign, first as an intern and then became his healthcare advisor. And my and like, uh, sort of professional life in policy and politics started there.
0: It's interesting, though, that, that your interests were in global health. I mean, that in, in I suppose, what was this like the, the late 1990s or, or mid 1990s? That wasn't like a, a big field yet. I mean, it's a huge field now. But back in the day, it wasn't really. It was probably just emerging back then, I would imagine.
1: Yeah, it wasn't a great field in terms of there were no job opportunities in particular. Uh, but,
0: there was no Gates Foundation <laughs> Exactly,
1: yet. exactly. Um, and, and so, you know, when I when I went to Mexico, I actually said, hey, I want to be global health. And within a few years, I was on a path to, to really be domestically oriented and a specialist in, in U.S. medicine, in part because that's how we get trained in this country, you know, and in part because you're exactly right. There, there were very few opportunities in global health. But, But I was fortunate and I met people who who gave me some unique chances to work on health policy in Latin America, PAHO and the WHO, and, uh, and then really exceptionally lucky in having the chance to join the Gates Foundation very close to its inception.
0: So, what was that like? To, to I mean, this I mean, the Gates Foundation obviously has like transformed the landscape of of global health just by you know the virtue of its I think size and its ambition. Um, but what what was your early role in the Gates Foundation like? Were you and Bill Gates and Melinda Gates just kind of strategizing and figuring out what what to do?
1: Well, it was a very very small team at the
0: time, and
1: great leaders like Bill, say of course famously led the eradication of smallpoxes. Jimmy Carter, CDC director. Bill Gates, and so many others would come together. And we would, in fact, talk about what should our strategy be? How can you best use these incredible resources to save children's lives and to most efficiently and effectively save lives and transform human inequity at global scale? And for for someone, you know, coming out of medical school and then the Gore campaign, just having the chance to learn from Bill and Melinda and the way they were thinking through these problems uh, and to see their ambition to not just do a few good things in certain places, but to invest in the kind of technology that could be effective across 120 million child birth cohort every year, or to see the relentless focus on okay, we're trying to save lives, but what's the cheapest, most cost-effective way to save a year of life? And looking at things called DALY tables, these disability adjusted life years, and try and actually model what. It cost to save a life year through different interventions and then allocate resources that way was, was really fun for someone who uh, loved econometrics and was statistically inclined and had a medical background and had a dream to work on global health. So I just felt very fortunate to be there and I'm glad they gave me the opportunities to learn and grow in so many different ways.
0: Do you remember like a specific conversation with, with Bill or Melinda when you realized that this was like a place? Oh, absolutely. My, my favorite
1: one was we, we were really trying to think through how can you get the billions and billions and billions of additional dollars required to immunize every single child around the world. And I had worked with a few of my colleagues on a proposal called the International Finance Facility for Immunization, but it would be the first ever uh, immunization bond that would be backed by mostly European governments making long-term commitments, uh, and then it would raise billions of dollars in the private capital market.
0: And in my that was your proposal. That was a proposal that I helped create. Yeah, oh, okay. I, did not, I did not know that. That's yeah. and that basically funds went, Gavi now. But sorry, go ahead.
1: Yeah, it's really transformed the way we procure vaccines around the world, and that's super exciting. But when when we first proposed this to Bill, he was Skeptical it could work, and and sort of in his famous uh, and very challenging style, uh, explained all the reasons it might not. But then he also said, you know, go give it a shot, and really became the strongest supporter of that effort over the three years that it took to go from idea and inception to reality. And I, I still remember the day that I realized it was actually going to become real, Uh, because I was so convinced it would be successful and so transformational. It was a very, very exciting moment. And I'm very grateful that he not just sort of challenged us to do better, but stuck with it and drove it over the finish line together with great partners like Gordon Brown of the UK.
0: And it's still kicking. It's it's still around, right? Helping to fund the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunizations.
1: It it absolutely is. And as you know, Gavi has vaccinated more than 440 million children, and saved you nearly know, 5 million lives by a conservative estimate as a result of its work. And I think the IFS has been one of the tools it has put in place that really helped to restructure the global market for vaccines and make product available for lower-income countries and children in those
0: countries. Um, so, how did you go then from from the Gates Foundation to the Obama administration? My understanding is you're, you're at the Agriculture Department first, right, working on on uh, agriculture development.
1: Yeah, so one of the things I did at the Gates Foundation was uh, help create the Global Development Program and run the Global Agricultural Development Program, which was the first big new effort right. that we embarked on after Warren Buffett made his exceptional gift to the Gates Foundation, I think, in 2005 or 2006. And so through that experience, I got to learn a lot about agriculture and science, I ended up joining uh, the Obama administration as the undersecretary in the department of agriculture for uh, science and research and education and economics. And so that was a great experience, but it's how I got started in the Obama administration.
0: Mm-hmm. It was basically, you know, Buffett's from what Nebraska and his family is, is very, has always been, I think very committed to, to farmers. And so he kind of took that global when he partnered with the Gates foundation. Uh,
1: yes, actually he, Made a gift to the Gates Foundation and really relied on, on Bill and Melinda and the team at the foundation to determine exactly what to do with it. Uh, but the challenge was to figure out very high leverage ways to expand the reach of human opportunity. And we looked at many, many different things from nuclear threat reduction to water and sanitation to agriculture. And at the time came to the conclusion that agricultural research and development applied in lower income but agrarian economies would be the most cost-effective way to move lots of people out of hunger and poverty particularly in Africa
0: um, and so moving to the to the administration to DC did you get a sense that um, you were able to do any more or less now that you are, um, you know, a, a member of the government. I mean, on the one hand, you're just like a cog in the machine as an Undersecretary at the Agriculture Department. On the other hand, you know, you're part of the United States government with the ability to shape policies around the world. So, like, how did you approach your job and, and your um, idea of what was possible as an Undersecretary? Well, uh, you know, the
1: answer is with a huge amount of enthusiasm. The truth is. Uh, No matter what anyone says about American politics and American government, at the end of the day, the scale, the reach, and the opportunity to do good around the world is pretty much unparalleled in my view. And even as one of many undersecretaries of the Department of Agriculture, I had 10,000 staff, 2,300 Ph.D. uh, scientists, including 600 Ph.D. economists, and you could ask almost any question and start to get some of the most effective and creative answers. Uh, and it was in that role that I started working with then-Secretary of State uh, Hillary Clinton on, on an effort to promote agriculture around the world and traveled with her and her team to Haiti and Kenya and other places uh, and ultimately you know, made a bit of a transition from the Department of Agriculture to USAID.
0: Did you and Secretary Clinton, um, I guess early in, in the presidency, travel somewhere together? I mean, what was uh, to, to to investigate places in the field while you were under secretary at the Agriculture Department, and what what was the, what were those circumstances?
1: Yeah, well, we we had a lot of you know we had known each other previously. We had a lot a lot of meetings together, and certainly some travel together, including to Africa. One trip in particular, I remember to Kenya, where we launched major agricultural research partnerships um, at the Kenyan Agricultural Research Institute, including new investments in orange flesh, sweet potatoes to fight malnutrition and efforts to improve access to drought-tolerant maize to improve uh, a country's ability to withstand drought and eliminate hunger caused by weather conditions. And those discussions just blossomed into one day, my phone ringing in the morning, and it was Hillary, and she said, I talked to the president, we want you to come on USAID, and, uh, and I was excited about that opportunity for obvious reasons.
0: Where were you when your phone rang?
1: Uh, in my office. <laughs> I got in very early.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what was the first person you told after that phone call?
1: Uh, so it was Tom Vilsack. Tom is our outstanding agricultural secretary who invited me to be part of the administration. <laughs> and he was, uh, he was happy for me and a little bit disappointed at the same time, but uh, but has continued to be a great friend and partner. And, and that's one of the things that's so great about, you know, a, a team like the Obama team, or I think any presidential administration, is when you have folks working across different agencies and different lines of effort, but against the same goal in this case, fighting child hunger at home and abroad, uh, it's just very motivating. As, as you know, and as so many of your guests have articulated, the chance to be a part of something bigger than yourself and to contribute to something that's fundamentally about justice and opportunity for, for those that don't have the chance to fight for themselves is so deeply rewarding that I was grateful to Tom for you know being positive about my transition.
0: The first time I, I saw you was probably um, just days after your appointment uh, at a press conference, standing bus, behind uh, President Obama, right after the, the Haiti earthquake. That that came just very soon into your time. Yeah,
1: six right? to seven days after uh, Hillary swore me in, the, the Haiti earthquake happened, and it was an extraordinary moment. Actually, it was my first call from the president. So the, I was in my office. We had of, of the twelve senior leadership positions at USAID, I was the only person confirmed by the Senate and installed at that point. And we had a lot of vacancies and, and my phone rang and it was the White House and they said, Can you hold for a call with the president? I said, Of course. <laughs> and, uh, and he and he immediately said, You know, I'm gonna ask you to leave this lead the humanitarian effort in Haiti and work across the government and take responsibility for all of the agencies' engagements and uh and, you know, we wish you well. And that was uh, a short engagement and interaction, but uh, the start of a great partnership, and I was thrilled to have that opportunity and really overwhelmed by the responsibility that came with
0: it. So what were some of the first things you did after that phone call then?
1: Uh, Well, you know, the first thing we did was connect uh, with the rest of the team, including the Secretary of Defense. And the chairman chairman chiefs, because one of the first things we had to do was just get, you know, 140, 150 urban search and rescue experts and their teams in Port-au-Prince via airlift. And we didn't have visibility on the airport conditions. And we had lots of people from countries around the world starting to fly to Haiti uh, in order to be helpful. And all of that needed to be organized and managed. So I quickly stood up our emergency management program put in place leadership at USAID, worked with our partners across government, went over to the Department of Defense and spoke uh, via the chairman's briefing to the DOD teams around the world that were going to soon to be deployed and engaged in the effort. And we had, I think, one of the strongest and most effective examples of civilian-military partnership in addressing a humanitarian crisis we've seen in our country's humanitarian history
0: were Were there any instances uh, in in which your, your youth, because you were still in your thirties, right when, when you were uh, at, at this point, um, sort of affected uh, how other people viewed you? I mean, you're obviously a cabinet official, but you're you know young. Did, did, that, did you notice in any way in any meaningful way, how that shaped your interactions as you were doing your job?
1: Well, you know, I, I'm not sure I'm not sure I noticed, but the truth is, I was young. I was thirty six, and I' had the opportunity by then to be in a number of you know significant leadership roles at a younger age. And what I learned from all of that was you just have to be willing to ask lots of questions and admit to people that you don't know or you haven't yet experienced, uh, you know, in this case, a major humanitarian response. And sometimes asking simple questions, like, how many people need water, and do we know where they are? How quickly can we stand up food distribution, and who does that? What are the rules that allow us to, you know, what what rules need to be relaxed so that we can be more aggressive at driving the response in the short term? Uh, I later grew to understand that those were extraordinarily basic questions, but asking them seemed to liberate the experts that I had the luxury of working with, who had decades of experience. And they said, "Well, if you ask it that way, we can, you know, we can overcome these regulatory constraints by doing this, this, and this, uh, and we can reach more people faster. Should we do that?" And you know, I, the oh, answer yeah. is always yes. I,
0: I wonder if the, if those kind of basic questions also like demonstrate a degree of humility that people might not assume you have because you're you know so young and successful.
1: Uh, well, well, I hope so. At that point, I was not trying to be <laughs> humble in my any regard. I was just trying to learn enough to be effective at supporting people with great expertise. But I will tell you, in that moment, and that same night that the president called, uh, actually President Clinton called you know, late at night, almost midnight, to offer his advice, and it was great advice about getting heavy equipment into town because weeks from now we're going to have to move trouble and people won't think about it right away. And uh, a lot of great leaders called with good advice. But the most exceptional thing were USAID staff from around the world, from Afghanistan, from Peru, from Ethiopia, would send notes or call and say, "Hey, I have Haiti experience. I'm, I know how to handle these things. I'm going to come help you get this done." Uh, and just the, the pride in institution and the expertise that I had access to in that moment was truly off the charts. And It let me see firsthand that being a part of a great institution like USAID, where people are genuinely good people with a great mission in front of them, is, in fact, a special opportunity.
0: So in in the last, like, two minutes, I was wondering if I can ask just two quick more questions. Um, Sure. Uh, the first is, is, is you know, a- along the lines of, of, of the previous question, um, you're, you're also the, the highest ranking Indian American ever appointed in, in the U.S. government. Um, we obviously have like a pretty, I think, proud and, and, and uh, tradition in the United States of, of you know, identity politics, uh, which, you know, I think sometimes gets a bad rap, but I think is valuable. I'm wondering um, how you approach the fact that you are the highest ranking Indian American sort of ever in the history of the United States.
1: Well, I was excited about that reality, but I also, you know, just did my best to do my job and to learn from others. And there are a lot of Indian Americans in the Obama administration and in American politics on both sides of the aisle who have been trailblazers that made all of that possible. So I was grateful for the opportunity. Frankly, I didn't think about it that much, uh, but I was proud of the fact that my community was so supportive of me personally, and they were just so happy to see a fellow Indian American in a role where they were contributing in public service. And that further motivated me to just do the best I could.
0: Did it ever manifest itself when you visited India? Were there any, like, fun interactions?
1: Well, yeah, certainly on our first trip to India uh, with with President Obama, actually, in 2010, uh, he he made sure to mention to nearly everyone we met, including the prime minister and his wife, that I was, in fact, uh, you know, a, a relatively senior Indian American appointee. Uh, and, and he would also go out of his way to point out that I was quite young, uh, which, you know, in India is less helpful, right? Because most of the ministers there are, you know, a, a little bit older than even here in the United States and ages, ages thought of differently. So I would just smile and do my best. But it made the president happy and joke about it. and uh, And it all worked out well in the end.
0: Uh so so just to wrap up, so what's what's next for you? Like what what's what's on your agenda, what challenges, what, what what are you gonna do now? I mean, you you've written this chapter, which is excellent with Michael Gerson. Uh what else are you up to?
1: Well, I was very proud to contribute with Michael Gerson, who I think of as a great Republican leader on these same exact issues, uh passionate, smart, thoughtful, and very successful in his own right. And the two of us contributed to Moneyball for Government, which I think is not just a book, but a movement about bringing data and evidence to the task of governance. Uh, so I'm a, a senior fellow at Results for America. I started a private equity firm called Lattice Capital that is trying to invest in power and water and other related infrastructure investments in developing countries to help expand the reach of human opportunity, but from a commercial perspective, And from a policy perspective, my most serious uh, contribution, I hope, will be in the area of fragile states. I just think America can do better at engaging in those places in a way that's part of the fight against extreme poverty, part of the fight to ensure that every child everywhere has a real opportunity to experience justice and a fair life, uh, but also an increasingly important part of our own national security and foreign policy.
0: Well, well, Raj, thank you so much for your time. This is great. Yeah, thanks so much. All right, thank you all for listening. Thank you to Raj Shah, and thank you again to the listener slash distiller slash audio engineer who rescued this episode from the depths of audio Hades. All right, we'll talk to you next time. Bye.